Welcome to the genetics module. This first lecture, we're going to be reviewing the basis of genetics and some of the biologic principles that will be important for you to understand as we start talking about these diseases. I want you guys to know that although the majority of your test questions will not come from this PowerPoint, the material in this PowerPoint is important to understand to understand the diseases we will talk about later. You will have some questions that come out of this PowerPoint for your exam, but I want you to know that the majority of the test questions will be focused on the actual genetic disorders and not necessarily these fundamental principles. So please keep that in mind as you study for your exam. Human cells contain 23 paired chromosomes. 22 pairs of autosomes and one pair of sex chromosomes. There's a total of 46 chromosomes because they come in pairs and 23 times two is 46. Down here, you'll note that one through 22 are the autosomes and the final pair are your sex chromosomes, XY and XX. XY is attributed to the male sex as XX is attributed to the female sex. On the right, you'll note an image of a chromosome. Please note the centromere, as this is a fundamental component of mitosis and meiosis, where these spindle fibers will attach to actually pull these apart. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It is a double-stranded molecule that forms a double helix. It contains the genetic instructions uh, for your cell growth, development, functioning, as well as division. It is composed of sequences of nucleotides, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. Nucleotides are joined by covalent bonds to the sugar phosphate backbone. The bases of the different strands are joined by hydrogen bonds. A binds with T and C binds with G. I just remember AT, 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 and then I know they bind together. And then that makes it easy to remember that the C and the G, the ones that you didn't remember, are the ones that bind together also. Another quick memory aid uh, to help you out is if you look down here, Adenine and guanine are purines, okay, and thymine and cytosine are pyrimidines. Now, this is not super helpful, the adenine and the guanine, but if you look at thymine and cytosine, uh, they have a Y in them, just like pyrimidine. So the ones with the Y are the pyrimidines, the thymine and the cytosine. Adenine and guanine don't have a Y, therefore they are purines. Central dogma describes the process by which DNA is used in the body to create proteins, which are the ultimate functional unit of this process. DNA is first replicated. The process of replication is literally the DNA creating a copy of itself. After replication, the process of transcription occurs. When you think about transcription, I want you to think of a court transcriber who's sitting there and taking the spoken form of the courtroom hearings and transcribing it into a written form to be viewed later. This process is transcription. Okay, so the DNA is going from a double-stranded unit to a single-stranded unit, which contains the same information. And one of the other differences, uh, the DNA is deoxyribose unit uh, of glucose, whereas the RNA is just a ribose unit. After this, I want you guys to think of translation. Um, and when you think of translation, you think of going from, let's say, one language to another. And that's pretty much what you're getting here. DNA to RNA, they're two very similar structures. You know, one's a double helix, one's single-stranded. Uh, but translation, you're, you're taking this RNA and you're creating an entirely new 
functional unit. So you can think of that as translating it to a new language. DNA has several important functions. Some of them include replication, which is the DNA replicating itself or creating copies of the genetic information to maintain their integrity and later to be transferred to their offspring. DNA also stores the genetic code, the code for coding for certain amino acids. Uh, these are done through triplets called codons. Mutation and recombination is the process by which some segments of DNA can be spliced, which is essentially being cut off and transferred to create beneficial changes that can offer immunity to offsprings. Gene expression is the activation or inactivation of certain genes within DNA. The more differentiated a cell is, or uh, for better terms, the more specialized of a function that a cell performs, the less genes that will be on. These uh, gene expression can be altered by internal and external factors. What you see here is the basic structure of DNA. And again, I just want to stick here to the basics. The backbone of the DNA molecule is made up of a sugar and phosphate unit, okay? Deoxyribose, which is the D in DNA. Within the middle, you'll see different nitrogenous bases, okay? And these are these bars that connect each side of this helix, which I'm circling here. They are adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. If you guys just remember AT, AT, you know that those two bind together, adenine and thymine. And then you know the other two that you didn't remember, the G and the C, bind together, guanine and cytosine. On this end over here, you'll see the three and the five, okay, which are the different heads of the DNA molecule. And when they're split in half, this is important because uh, the initial leading strand that's formed when these two split in half is read from the five end uh, down to the three end. I don't think it's super important to go into these details now because it doesn't affect your knowledge of a lot of these genetic conditions, but just a quick review. And if you guys are interested, uh, I'm going to have links to these in the comment section so you can go over uh, the actual process in, in much more detail. I just don't think it's super relevant, but I did want to at least touch upon it just as a refresher. There's some different terminology which can get kind of confusing and is often used interchangeably and sometimes incorrectly. So I just want to cover some of these quick concepts here. Uh, DNA is wrapped around histones, and as you can see over here in the uh, top right section, uh, this area over here uh, is known as the nucleosome, okay? And it's just the DNA uh, being wrapped around the histone, okay? And this structure here is called the nucleosome. If you look down in the bottom right picture, uh, you're going to see this unit over here, the chromosome, okay? Chromosome is just very, 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 very tightly packed DNA. As it begins to unravel, this less tightly packed section, let me just erase here, this less tightly packed section down here is known as chromatin. Okay, it's the same thing, just not as tightly bound. And as it begins to unravel, you can finally start seeing the nucleosomes, okay, which is the DNA wrapped around this histone. And when it completely unravels, when it's going to be replicated, uh, that's when you'll see the actual DNA helix, which can be broken down for replication. Okay. Now in the process of replication, the DNA makes an identical copy of itself during cell division. The DNA enzyme helicase, and you can think about that as, uh, usually when we think of enzymes, we think about breaking things down. Um, and what is it breaking down? Well, the double helix, hence the name, helicase. 
Or if you're like me, you can think about it as a helicopter, just kind of chopping right through the middle of that double helix and breaking those hydrogen bonds. When this breaks apart, it's going to create that Y-shaped fork that we saw on the last slide. And this is called the replication fork. Both sides of that fork are going to be turned into brand new strands of DNA. Okay. Uh, it is important that you remember the five prime end, the three prime end that we talked about earlier, because the leading strand is actually replicated continuously from the uh, five prime end to the three prime end. And the lagging portion is uh, replicated in a much more complicated process using DNA primase and DNA polymerase uh, done in a section by section basis, not really as a continual read. I don't think this is super important to cover right now, but I did want to just go over this process here. This here is a graphic depiction of what we were talking about. Please recall that DNA helicase is the enzyme which comes through and actually splits the double helix apart into two different strands, a leading strand and a lagging strand. These are differentiated by the different sections of the three prime and the five prime end. Please note that on the leading strand, DNA polymerase binds from its 5' prime end and reads from the 5' prime to the 3' prime end in a continuous fashion. Whereas on the lagging strand, uh, this happens in a discontinuous fact, uh, fashion in which the DNA primase is creating different segments which can be read from the 5' prime to the 3' prime end. And these fragments created are known as Okazaki fragments. Gene expression is the process by which the instructions of DNA are converted into a functional protein. If you'll recall, we spoke about transcription and translation. We said that transcription is just like a courtroom hearing, taking verbal content and transcribing it into written content. So you're not actually doing any translation. You're not creating anything particularly new. Okay, so transcription is the process by which the uh, template DNA strand is copied into an RNA sequence, okay? And as we recalled, RNA and DNA are very similar, except RNA is single-stranded. And another difference that I wanna to bring to light here is that the uracil takes the place of a thymine, okay? So you remember we said to remember at, uh, and that's adenine and thymine, and those are the two ends uh, on each side of the double helix that bind together with the hydrogen bond. Well, I want you to remember at you. Okay, and that's A-T-U, at-U. Okay, just so you can remember that in DNA, the A binds to the T, and you know that the C binds to the G. But in the case of RNA, the T is replaced with a U. So if you remember at-U, you always remember that the A binds to the T, unless it's RNA, in which the A binds to the U. And then you can just remember uh, by process of omission that the other two, cytosine and guanine, are the ones that bind together. And these do not change whether DNA or RNA. Translation is the process of creating a new protein, which is the ultimate function of central dogma. Uh, what we spoke about begins with replication, moves to transcription, and goes to translation. Replication and transcription occur in the nucleus of the cell. And the product is messenger RNA, mRNA. So what kind of message is mRNA carrying? Well, it's carrying the message uh, of instructions to create a new protein. And it's carrying it from the nucleus of the cell out into the cytoplasm where it meets with the ribosome. The ribosome binds to the mRNA on the start codon and then reads the base units three at a time. Uh, and this is known as a codon. 
okay, these three base units. And this is letting the ribosome know what amino acid needs to be put into this chain to ultimately create the protein specified. Okay, an example would be GGU, okay, which would call, uh, create glycine. And if we remember, the Gs bind to the C and the U binds to the A. Okay, and in DNA, the A binds to the T, but this is RNA, so there's a U. So what's gonna go ahead and bring these different amino acids uh, to the ribosome to bind to the uh, mRNA? Well, it's the tRNA, which is known as transfer RNA. Okay, so the mRNA is the messenger which carries the message from the nucleus to the cytoplasm to the ribosome. Once it's in the ribosome, the tRNA or the transfer RNA transfers complementary anticodons with a specific amino acid attached to it. This process over the entire chain will create the specified protein. Another important fact to remember is the start codon and stop codons. And I'm gonna give you a very easy way to remember this. Translation starts in August. AUG. There's no other months or resemblance of months that are formed by any combination of these three letters or three uh, uh, nitrogenous bases. Okay. And it stops in UAG, UGA, and UAA. And I want you to remember you go away, you are gone, and you are away. So all of these that have, um, you know, one of those words, so you are gone, you go away, or you are away. Uh, that's what lets the um, ribosome know that the protein is complete so that it can go ahead and release or terminate the process of uh, creating the protein. There are 20 amino acids and 64 potential combinations of these codons. Okay, so there are multiple codons that can code for the same amino acid. It's really important to remember this uh, particular information here, the fact that there's 20 amino acids and 64 combinations of codons, and also that more codons can make the same amino acid. Because you're gonna see later on that there's uh, different errors in this process that can cause uh, different bases to be put in, but can ultimately not cause any kind of issues because the protein is functionally the same because that, uh, change in the base didn't cause the creation of a new protein or a new amino acid. So the structure is still functional, even though there was an issue in this process and maybe a substitution was um, uh, made in this process. So very important to remember that fact. Mutations are permanent changes in the nucleotide sequence of DNA and typically occur during replication or recombination. These changes can be caused by substitution, deletion, or insertion of base pairs, which will be covered shortly. Most mutations are harmless, but if they lead to cell death or tumor formation, they can have harmful effects. There are several mechanisms for which cells can repair damaged DNA prior to this mutation causing adverse effects. Base substitution is the most common type of mutation. We spoke about this earlier when we said that uh, sometimes you can have a mutation in which one of the base pairs of the nucleotide sequences is altered. There's three different uh, possibilities that can arise from this. We already spoke about silent mutations briefly, where I mentioned that there's over 60 different combinations of codons, and there are different combinations that can cause the same amino acid to be produced. So if you have a silent mutation, that means that there is a change in the base pairs, 
but the actual amino acid is still coded for and it doesn't change and therefore the actual protein created doesn't change and it's still functional. This is silent because you won't notice it. It's not making any kind of effect. The missense mutation uh, will produce a different amino acid, but the effects really depend on which amino acid is produced. Okay, and if it's something that's going to cause a structural change in the protein that's going to limit its uh, effectiveness or cause a new effect, it can have very, very large implications for certain patients. A nonsense mutation essentially means that a stop codon is produced and the protein is cut short. Because remember, the start codon um, starts in August, AUG, and then it ends in the um, three stop codons that we spoke about. You go away you are gone and you are away, UGA, UAG, and UAA, okay? So if that codon comes too soon, that stop codon, it will stop the production of the protein uh, and result in, in an abnormally short and non-functional protein. And these are the three types of base substitute, uh, the three types of base mutations that can occur. This is a depiction uh, in a chart of what we were just speaking about with the base substitutions. As you can see here in the normal um, normal sequence, the amino acid produced by GCC is alanine. Now, if you look at the silent mutation, a GCT is produced, which is still alanine. So the C was substituted for T. However, the same amino acid is produced despite the change in this base pair. Okay, and that's because these can code for, uh, you know, different combinations of codons can code for the same amino acid. So this is silent and the patient won't have any adverse effects. Now, if you take a look at the missense, the base substitution here occurs from the uh, uracil to the guanine. And this results in the production of a new amino acid. Okay, and this new amino acid, depending on how it affects the production of this protein, may or may not cause um, significant manifestations. If you look at the nonsense mutation, the nonsense mutation occurs here where UGA is produced. You go away. Okay. And when you have this produced here, the uh, amino acid um, will, or sorry, the ribosome will stop producing this protein at this point and it will result in an incomplete protein formation, which would not be useful. Uh, and therefore it would lead to significant alterations. Next, we're going to talk about deletion and insertion mutations, and the name implies exactly what's going on. Either one or two base pairs will be added or removed, resulting in a frame shift and causing non-functional products. And by frame shift, what we mean is that if you add in the middle of a sequence one new or two new uh, base pairs, that will result in every single amino acid produced after that to be different from the original resulting in a completely different protein being produced. And we can see how this is much different from a point mutation, um, which may just affect one of the amino acids produced. This is a depiction of frame shift mutations caused by deletion and insertion. Uh, here we have the normal protein being coded for. And as we can see here, we have UGC and GCC. Now, as you can see on the frame shift deletion, the C here in alanine is deleted. Okay, and because it's deleted, it causes a frame shift mutation. And now this U is going to shift over. Okay, and although this amino acid isn't changed, every single one 
moving forward is changed because of the substitution, or sorry, because of this uh, deletion. And that's why they call it frame shift, because it shifts the entire frame of the protein. And the same is true for a frame shift insertion, except instead of a deletion occurring, it's the insertion of a new base pair. Okay, and that's very clear here, where we have UGC, and here we have GCC, and there's an insertion of a C, okay, resulting in a complete frame shift mutation for the remaining protein. So now this C is added, so everything else changes in front, and the entire protein is going to be affected. DNA mutation can be caused by several reasons. Uh, there could be errors in replication, although these aren't very, very common. And the reason is that there is an enzyme called DNA polymerase, which we didn't talk too much about, although it was briefly mentioned. And one of the functions that we didn't really speak about for this DNA polymerase is that it does proofreading, which pretty much means as it's making uh, the replication process, when it's replicating the DNA, it goes back and it double checks to make sure that everything is in order. And if there's any issues, it has several methods by which you can go back and actually correct these issues. Chemical damage, uh, for instance, with chemotherapy and chemotherapeutic agents can cause uh, errors in DNA, which can ultimately affect the final proteins produced, um, which can result in mutations. Uh, radiation, uh, similar to chemical damage, but just via different means, can also cause uh, DNA damage and lead to mutations. All right, guys, so we're going to get into some nitty gritty here. We talked about DNA damage and that it can occur through uh, you know, chemo radiation, UV radiation, also spontaneous mutations. And now we're going to talk a little bit about these repair processes um, for single stranded damage. Okay, so I want you guys to stay with me here. It's going to be a little confusing. Um, but in reality, I don't need you guys to be super well versed in this. I just want you to understand some of these different mechanisms. And I want to go over them and explain them at least once. So when you're first going through the replication process, uh, you know, the DNA helix is split by helicase, and then there's two different strands separated by the fork, which are then joined by DNA polymerase to create two separate strands. When DNA polymerase is doing this, it's attaching uh, new base pairs. So, you know, T's to the A's, uh, G's to the C's, so on and so forth. Occasionally, the DNA polymerase, and when I say occasionally, it actually happens quite a bit will implement the wrong base. So instead of an A with a T, it might put a C or a G, right? And as it's going through, it's kind of looking over its shoulder, um, you know, kind of like you would when you're revising one of your documents when you're typing. You look back really quick at your previous sentence, and if you see it made a mistake, you'll go back and you'll fix it, right? So that process is called proofreading. The DNA polymerase is proofreading the new strand that it's creating. However, uh, it's not perfect, just like we're not. We might be typing our document. We might miss a bunch of errors while we're typing, and then uh, we'll have to go back and correct them later, right? And there's a few different mechanisms by which this happens. The first one is a mismatch, uh, sorry, mismatch repair, okay? So with mismatch repair, uh, what's going to happen is that there's specific proteins called MSH proteins that after the um, new segments have been completed, we'll go back and realize if there's any mismatch pairs, any A's that are not with T's, but are rather with a, a C or a G. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna recruit 
this enzyme called endonuclease. And endonuclease is going to go ahead and come in, and just like, for instance, in this segment here, let's say this was not paired correctly, it would come in and it would actually cut off a segment here. Okay, uh, so this segment that you see that I went ahead and, and highlighted here, it would actually cut this section off if these two uh, were paired incorrectly. Okay, which here they're correct, but just assume they're incorrect. And it would actually take this segment off. And that would leave uh, just a giant gaping hole there uh, in this strand. And what would happen is the DNA polymerase would then come back and repair that area. And then there's another enzyme called ligase. Ligase comes back seals the uh, the cracks in the uh, phosphate backbone in the sugar phosphate backbone and the dna is good as new right okay perfect that's mismatch repair next is going to be nucleotide excision repair nucleotide excision repair usually results from uv radiation okay so what happens here is that the uv radiation actually damages the dna and causes pyrimidine dimers what does that mean normally these two groups the nitrogenous bases are bind bounded by hydrogen as you see here okay but what happens when you have these pyrimidine dimers is that they actually break down and bind to an adjacent base okay and that creates a pyrimidine dimer and kind of breaks apart these hydrogen bonds and causes an abnormal formation okay so what happens here when these um pyrimidine dimers are created the endonuclease will come in just like it did in mismatch repair okay but just the only difference here is that it's not due to a mismatch it's due to uv radiation creating pyrimidine dimers but the next steps are the same endonuclease comes cleaves off this uh, negatively affected segment removed okay dna polymerase comes in repairs the corrected area and then dna ligase seals in the sugar phosphate backbone and everything is good as new Okay, so if that's confusing, just play it back. Or you can also click up here. I put a video that explains this a little better with some clear pictures, but I hope I was clear myself. Okay, and then there's another type that I want to talk to you about that's a little different, and this is called base excision repair. Okay, and when you're talking about base excision repair, just remember that you're only excising one of the nitrogenous bases, right? So what happens is, and let me go ahead and switch over to my marker here. Okay. If you have some kind of chemical or physical damage, uh, there's going to be deamination of one of the bases. What does that mean? That means that one of these bases here is going to be deaminated. An amino group will be removed, and it can completely alter the structure and turn, um, you know, these bases into different, um, uh, into different, into different bases that will not have the desired effect when coding for proteins and cause. Uh, you know, wreak havoc on, on the proteins that should be made from this DNA, um, this DNA strand, right? So what's going to happen here and what's different from the other ones is the first enzyme that's going to come into place is going to be called the glycosylase. And the glycosylase is actually going to remove just this segment here, okay? And it's not going to cut out or affect the uh, sugar phosphate backbone. It's just going to take out this segment here, okay? Glycosylase. And what it's going to leave behind is an empty site called an AP site. The AP site stands for um, apyridemic uh, site, okay? Because it's either going to remove um, a purine, okay? So apyrinic or a pyrimidine, apyridemic, okay? And I know you guys are probably laughing at me right now for my pronunciation. This happened in endocrine too, but I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, you guys can't laugh at me because this is recorded, but uh, just, just save it for the, uh, for the session later that we'll have, all right? So 
once that is removed, it's going to leave that empty AP site. Okay. And then after this, it's just like the other ones. Endonuclease will come in to where this AP site is and just excise that AP site, remove it. As you guessed, DNA polymerase comes in, repairs the broken segment, DNA ligase comes in, glues everything back up, seals it shut, and we're good to go. All right, guys. So these are the three single-stranded uh, error repair mechanisms for DNA mutation. Okay. Now, what happens if this process doesn't work, right? So uh, the, the first thing that happens is hopefully proofreading fixes the mistake. And if it doesn't, you'll go down to mismatch repair. Um, and if you have any of these type of injuries, then you might have nucleotide excision repair, okay, if there's uh, a result of UDV radiation causing pyrimidine dimers, or base excision repair if, if it's caused by deamination, okay, um, of one of the nitrogenous bases, right? So what happens if this repair mechanism fails and this cell continues to divide? Well, if there's a permanent mutation, uh, one of three things typically happens, okay? One is that the cell will go into senescence, and senescence the, it just means that the cell is going to stop uh, producing. It's going to cease to reproduce and create new cells. Okay, so it's just going to stop. The other action that can happen is apoptosis, which is regulated cell death. The cell will commit suicide. Okay, um, and then the final thing is uncontrolled cell growth, which can be a result of several different types of malignancies um, due to unregulated growth of, of those abnormal cells. All right, guys, so, so far we've covered the three types of repairs that you have in single-stranded DNA breaks. And again, single-stranded DNA breaks are breaks that occur uh, just on one side here, whereas a double-stranded break will affect both sides, okay? So we spoke about single-stranded DNA breaks so far. We talked about mismatch repair, nucleotide excision repair, and base excision repair. We know that mismatching is just a quick repair uh, when DNA polymerase missed uh, any kind of errors uh, in the proofreading process, okay? And we spoke about base excision repair, which is typically when just one of the bases is incorrect, and it's usually due to damage caused by deamination, removal of amino groups, okay? And then we spoke about nucleotide excision repair, and we spoke about the cause of that being UV radiation, Okay, so you know sunlight injuries, things like that, that cause pyrimidine dimers, which is pretty much when uh, instead of these two base pairs joining this way, there's damage that occurs that causes them to join this way, and it creates an unstable structure, okay, which needs to be repaired. So now we're going to focus just on the double-stranded DNA breaks. Okay, so double-stranded again, we already spoke about that. It means that it's through the entire DNA structure complex. And these are some pretty severe uh, mechanisms of injury for DNA and usually caused by X-rays, gamma rays, um, and more intense radiation. So when you have this break, I want you to think about uh, this DNA structure here breaking like a pencil, diagonally like this. Okay, so you're going to have these two ends that are going to overhang each other. All right, and these two ends that are overhanging each other are going to be uneven. They're going to be jagged. They're going to be sharp, just like when you break a pencil. So it's going to be very difficult to bring these back together and glue them back together, right? Um, you know, at least in a fashion that's going to be suitable for, for generating, um, you know, creating proteins and, and, and continuing the actual function of the DNA structure. So there's two different ways that this is fixed when there's a double-stranded break. There's non-homologous end joining and homologous recombination repair. Non-homologous end joining, I want you to think of the name non, which means it's not, Homologous, which means the same, 
and joining, joining of the ends. So it means that the ends that are joined are not going to be the same as they used to be. Okay, so uh, what that means is you're going to lose some genetic information. This is an error prone process that's going to lead to, you know, some residual errors, okay, um, in, in the DNA structure. And the way it works is actually that a protein called DNA uh, protein kinase is going to bind to the broken ends of the pencil, the broken ends of the DNA structure on either side, and it's going to recruit another protein called Artemis. And Artemis is going to be like a sandpaper to the wooden pencil, okay? And it's going to sand down those jagged edges on both sides so that they're completely smooth. And then the pencil is going to come together, okay, once it's completely smoothed out, and ligase is going to come in and glue the pencil back together. So at the end of the day, the pencil is going to be, uh, you know, fixed, no jagged edges, but it's going to be shorter. You're going to be missing part of that pencil. And the same thing happens to the DNA. It's going to come back together. It's going to be rejoined, but you're going to lose some of that genetic information that was sanded away and it's, it's going to be gone. And if this is in an area that's coding for a protein, okay, um, or, or one of the genes that can result in some pretty big issues. So in comes homologous recombination repair. And now this is a much more exact repair process and it works by using a strand of DNA that has not been affected. Okay. That's perfectly normal. And it's going to line up next to each other and they're actually going to use the good strand as a template to fix the broken strand. It's going to be hard to explain this with the pencil analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> so I hope you guys can stick with me here. We're going to have a very rubbery pencil, okay, that can somehow deform itself to lend a helping hand. All right. So just picture this with me. Imagine you have this broken pencil with the two jagged edges and right on top of it, you have a perfect pencil. Okay. What's going to happen here is there's a protein called MRN that's going to bind to the two ends of the broken pencil and it's going to call the uh, endonuclease to come in. We've already heard about this protein and it's going to come in and it's not going to do what Artemis did. It's not going to just sand it flat, but it is going to get rid of some of those jagged edges, smooth it out and leave a much more clean surface. Okay. On either side of this broken pencil, then the broken pencil is going to line up. Okay. Where the non-broken pencil is and it's going to use the perfectly new pencil as a template to repair itself. How does that happen? The perfectly functional pencil is going to uh, dip down and make kind of like a U, okay, to line up where the area of the broken pencil should be filled in, okay? And then DNA polymerase is actually going to come in and it's going to copy the perfectly uh, formed segment of the pencil and create a copy of it to fill in the broken part. And then the pencil that's uh, used as a template is going to just go back uh, into its natural shape, okay? And then the same is going to happen to the, uh, the broken area. It's gonna have a template that's filled in, okay? And then DNA ligase is gonna come in and glue that area. So at the end, you end up with a perfectly repaired uh, segment of DNA, a perfectly repaired pencil. And I know this sounds super confusing and it's hard to explain without uh, animations, but hey, that's why there's an animation there for you guys to click on and just listen to what I'm saying and, you know, apply it to the animation. Once you watch a video of the animation process, it makes a lot more sense, but I think I did an okay job of explaining it verbally for you guys. At the end of the day, I don't need you guys to know all these details and the Artemis and the this protein and that protein. That's not what's important here. What's important here is that you understand that there's different types of damage to DNA. They're single-stranded and double-stranded. Okay, I want you to know that UV radiation causes single-stranded damage, right? Chemical exposure can cause these single-stranded damage. And some of the most uh, 
injury prone um, mechanisms involve you know x-rays and gamma rays and those cause double stranded breaks and there's repair processes that uh, lose information and repair processes that uh, you know try to retain that information okay and I want you guys to know the difference some of these key differences that we've been speaking on here we're going to be talking about epigenetics. Epigenetics uh, refers to changes that occur outside of the genetic code. Okay, so epi means upon or on top of the genetic code, or you can also think of it as outside of the genetic code. And this is because the code of uh, nucleotide sequences that we were talking about, those codons, um, the base pairs, okay, that uh, are attached by hydrogen bonds on both sides of the double helix, those are not altered, they remain completely the same, but their function and the frequency in which they code for certain proteins and in which certain genes are activated can be affected by external forces. And those external forces, uh, anything that, that causes those changes, we refer to as epigenetics. And there's two different forms in which this is done, uh, or two main forms in which this is done. Uh, that's acetylation and methylation. And I want you guys to think about the A in acetylation as activates and the M in methylation as mutes, okay? So when acetylation happens, which is the addition of an acetyl group, it activates the specific gene um, coding for a specific protein. And by activates, I don't mean just like a light switch on and off, although technically that's how it's explained in this slide, but really what it does is it increases the frequency um, of, this, uh, of this coding process in this specific area. Okay, so acetylation activates. And if you know acetylation activates, what would you think deacetylation does? Deacetylation will deactivate, okay? Methylation mutes, okay? So when you think of methyl groups being attached, when a methyl group is attached, it will mute or silence the gene. It will suppress the frequency in which a certain action is carried out or stop it altogether, okay? Uh, and it gets kind of confusing, so I don't want to make a blanket statement about methylation because there's certain instances where methylation can actually increase production. But for the purposes of what you need to know um, for clinical practice and for your boards, um, and, and honestly, for your boards, this might not be super pertinent, but it may be pertinent to some of the conditions uh, to understand these conditions. Think of methylation as muting and acetylation as activating deacetylation as deactivating and demethylizing as activating okay so just remember a for activate m for mute and if the word d is before either of those you know it's doing the opposite okay and that's all i really want you guys to think of um, when you're thinking of epigenetics okay and we'll get into the reason why this is important in just a bit so we talked about acetylation and methylation and how it activates and mutes certain genes, right? And we talked about the epigenetic process by which this is done, but we didn't explain what's really happening, okay? And do you guys remember that I told you that a chromosome is made of tightly packed chromatin? And when you unravel the chromatin, you start seeing the histones and the DNA is wrapped around these histones. And then when you further uncoil, that's when you see the DNA double helixes, uh, which are then you know used in replication and transcription and translation and so on and so forth. So 
what I really want you guys to focus on is here in these histones, okay? This is the histone here, okay, with the DNA wrapped around it. When you add an acetyl group here, which activates the genes, what it's doing is it's changing the, um, the bonds um, within this molecule so that the DNA is not tightly wound to the histone. If the DNA is tightly wound to the histone, it's hard for all these different processes to occur. The DNA needs to be more loose and separated. That's why it uncoils in order to undergo these processes. So adding the acetyl group will change the charges within the molecule. And those specifics, I don't need you to know, but it would change the charges so that the DNA is more loosely bound. And this being this loosely bound state will precipitate more of the um, genetic coding. It won't increase the activity. Okay, and then deacetylation will do the opposite. It will change the charges such that the uh, DNA becomes more tightly wound around the histone and there's less activation of these specific genes. And methylation, same concept. When you methylate, you're muting. And when you're muting, it's because you're tightly winding the DNA so that uh, these processes will not occur as frequently. Okay, and when you're demethylizing, you're removing a methyl group, you are loosening the, uh, the, the binding of the DNA around the histone and precipitating more genetic coding, more activation of these genes. All right, guys, so normally we inherit two alleles of each gene from our parents and they both contribute to our phenotype or our physical manifestation uh, of our genes. But imprinting is a process by which the maternal or paternal allele is silenced, okay, by the process of methylation. So remember, methylation mutes, it silences, okay? Uh, it's an epigenetic phenomenon and the addition of the methyl group okay, is going to stop either the paternal or maternal um, allele uh, from contributing to uh, gene expression, okay? So the person will only have one naturally activated allele from either the mother or the father. And this is the concept known as imprinting, which is an epigenetic phenomenon that contributes to some of the conditions that will be later discussed, uh, such as Prader-Willi syndrome and Engelmann syndrome.